This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. It's a place where we talk about important things. It's a place where we bring a little slice of the news to you. And it's a place where we do important things, have important conversations. It's also things that I like to talk about. My name is Cameron Cowan, and this is the Cameron Journal Podcast. That's better. Hello, everyone. My name is Cameron Cowan. This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. This is my signature weekly news hour. Um, thank you guys so much for coming. We have a lot to cover this week. I pulled several stories from Bloomberg. I was actually just watching a video from Vice about the um, Dominion voting machines and uh, and and how it's affecting Shasta County, California, who's canceled their contract and all this type of thing. It's an interesting video. I'll be posting it shortly. Um, I've got to get some new videos up on uh, on the Cameron Journal. <coughs> anyway, um, but we have lots of exciting uh, content uh, coming up this week. I have a bunch of literature stuff coming out. Um, we have uh, some interviews on Web3 crypto NFT stuff. One of those posted on Saturday, which is really exciting. And uh, we're moving into we're moving into April. So April is always a difficult month for me because my birthday is in April. But it's not in a good part of April. It's in late April. Um, and uh, on the twenty sixth. And um, and so we're we're twenty three, we're twenty three days and counting. Tick 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 tick. So that's fun. Um, but uh, I have an errant piece of hair there. Um, so that's that's fun and exciting and all this type of thing. And so, um, yeah, so there's exciting things happening. I just did an interview today with a, a fiction author. It was a fun kind of half hour sort of interview. Um, there's a couple other good interviews coming up, but I forget what was supposed to post today. Should have looked that up before I started this, but, um, so the interviews do come out every Monday, the same day as this show happens live. Um, so make sure to keep an eye out for those. If you, you can watch them on YouTube where you're watching this now, um, or you can, um, you can watch them wherever, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. <coughs> Spotify does have a video function now, and when I'm able to, I try to upload um, a video version of this to um, to Spotify. So, trying to do more with video as time goes on. Um, trying to uh, um, there we go. Trying to do more with that because video is kind of where everything is is headed these days. 
as we know. So, um, yeah, so that's that's fun. Um, let's dive into the news. The first story everyone's going to want me to talk about, now that we've got our personal updates out of the way, and the story everybody wants me to talk about is the Trump indictment. And yes, it has supposedly happened. I tell everyone the same thing. And I tell everyone the same thing for a reason. And that is very simple. Um, the simple fact of the matter is we don't have any information on the Trump indictment yet. We don't. Then the actual indictment has yet to come down. And um, we're waiting on the actual indictments to come out right now. They're still sealed. Um, well, all we have is rumors that he's going to be indicted tomorrow. Now, that rumor seems to have weight because he's just flew to New York today for the arraignment tomorrow, all this type of thing. Supposedly, there will be no handcuffs, but there will be a mugshot and a fingerprint. So um, this will be real as as far as it as far as it goes. So I think that's um, it's a significant moment in American history. Jerry Ford chose not to um, allow a criminal proceedings to go against Nixon over Watergate. Um, and he said it was to help heal the country. And that was probably true. Um, if you, there's a really great show on Showtime called First Ladies, which is, um, three different presidencies from the perspective, well, yeah, from the perspective of the ladies. So you have... Betty Ford, Michelle Obama, and Eleanor Roosevelt. And um, it's how, you know, the pardoning of Nixon and all that type of thing went down in the way that they struggled with it and all this type of thing. It's it's really well handled on that show. Um, and there's not a lot, because the Ford administration was so short, um, there isn't a lot of media about the Ford administration. It's kind of like, oh, yeah, Watergate, then Nixon resigned, then Ford was in, then Ford lost in 76, on to Jimmy Carter and stagflation. Um, it's kind of how the 70s get handled. Um, we kind of move from Watergate right into stagflation and economic troubles and more oil shocks and all that type of thing. We never really discussed that kind of year and a half, almost two years from... 73 to 75 um when jerry ford was president and um he died just a couple years back actually um <clears throat> his wife obviously became very well known for the betty ford clinic and being public about her alcoholism and being public about her uh, breast cancer and all this type of thing and all that's on the show but the great thing about it is they talk really great about how nixon was pardoned for watergate and there's no pardon coming for Trump on this. Lord knows Joe Biden's not going to do that. Um, and this is a state charge anyway, so no help there. <coughs> and uh, it's a very difficult... Um, it's a very difficult thing. In the rest of the world, criminal charges of foreign leaders is fairly normalized. Um, a few e usually do end up in jail. This has happened in South Korea a few times. Um, 
It's happened in Europe. It's not unknown. In this country, it is... This this will be the first time a former president has been charged with crimes um, not even related to things he did in office, thing related to things he did out of office. But... Um, the dialogue, the narrative... There's two narratives going. One narrative is from the left who are obviously happy about this, you know, state of affairs. They're happy that some justice is finally being done in the case of um, of Trump and all the stuff that he's done, you know, especially after two impeachments whose convictions did not happen in the Senate. Um this seems like justice finally here. For the right, the narrative is very different, as one might imagine. Um, the narrative instead is, this is a witch hunt. This is, you know, a terrible thing. This is unprecedented. They're going after Trump. They're trying to destroy him. All this type of thing. And I think to some degree, there's probably some truth to that in terms of you can't go around um you can't go around pissing in everybody's cheerios and be a criminal and do shady things especially with campaign money without incurring some legal risk the problem with trump is that he's been a grifter his whole life long okay and if he had never run for president, he probably could have continued on with the grift as Operation Normal. But the problem is when you start doing it with campaign funds and you're becoming, you're running for elected office or you're a public official, the standards are higher in terms of what you can do, what's going to pass legal muster, all this type of thing. And the unfortunate reality is that Trump's grift doesn't even begin to hope to meet the basic standards of ethics required by public officials acting in the name of the people. <clears throat> and so we have this, uh, this situation where not just in New York, but also in Georgia, where he tried to pressure a government official to falsify an election for him. Um, we have uh, this problem where Trump's usual business practices are finally maybe kind of sort of starting to catch up with him. It'll be interesting to see what the 34 counts are. There's also an investigation into the Trump organization as a business, which is so many shell companies within shell companies within shell companies, all this type of thing. I imagine that will take some time. But the unfortunate reality is Trump took his grift he has exposed it to public scrutiny and that has now led to a situation where he has legal exposure and uh, they're telling people they're going to shut down crucial streets in New York um, tomorrow to prevent protest and violence and all this sort of thing. Um, but, uh, tomorrow's going to be an interesting day. So, um, first time in American history that the, uh, 
legal system is going after a former president. So um, the other story that's gotten a lot of attention is the uh, the uh, protests in Tennessee over their new anti-trans legislation. Um, there are several hundred students who are protesting <clears throat> at the Tennessee state capitol, and three of the Democratic lawmakers, I just saw a video on this earlier, three of the Democratic lawmakers who... <clears throat> have been supporting these protests, um, were put off their committee assignments and had their uh, key badges um, pulled so they can't enter into the building. They've basically been shut out of the assembly for supporting these protests. Obviously, Tennessee is an all-Republican legislature. Democrats are in the minority. And um, and so that's, uh, that's not great. I mean, that's not how democracy is is supposed to work no matter kind of how you cut it um and so the the fact that you have um this sort of thing going on on an already charged topic that's the other thing it's like this is an already very charged topic um that that's not not so not so great not so good um definitely a cause for concern and a cause for um, for some attention to be brought to the situation in Tennessee. And this is something where you're probably going to see this a lot more in states where Republicans have kind of locked Democrats out of power forever through gerrymandering. So this is North Carolina. Wisconsin is particularly guilty of this. Um, <clears throat> where things have structurally changed in such a way that there's very little recourse, you're going to start to see these more virulent, um, virulent things happen because there's no consequences for them. You know, it's not like the, the way they've gerrymandered the districts and the way Republicans vote, it's not like they can do this and then know that they're going to lose power next election. If anything, the way the Republican vote is reacting, it will cause them more votes in the next election. And so you're going to see a lot more of this stuff. And if you haven't checked out those videos of the Tennessee protests over the trans bill, um, definitely go check those. Go check those out because um, it's quite haunting. <clears throat> um, an interesting thing that happened over over the weekend um, is uh, what Disney has done um, with its Reedy Creek Improvement District, which is the governmental entity that um, governs Disneyland. Now, before um, Governor DeSantis uh, passed legislation <clears throat> through his rubber stamp legislature in Tallahassee about um, Disney not going along with his anti-woke agenda, <clears throat> they pulled Disney's self-governing status through the Reedy Creek Improvement District <clears throat> and through um, put the district back in control of the state with a board that DeSantis appoints himself. However, in this story from Bloomberg, who's talking about how Bob Iger is running the company again, it says here, um, and this is kind of interesting how Bob did this, um, 
aided an end run around DeSantis, who had retaliated against Disney by revoking its special tax district status, which allowed the company to self-govern Disney World. But before the new governing structure could take place, Disney pushed through changes limiting the powers of the incoming board. He also addressed DeSantis head-on at the shareholder meeting on Monday, saying that the way he has tried to punish the company for speaking out on socialists is not just anti-business, but anti-Florida. Here's the interesting part, is not only did they make changes to it that basically um that basically killed the board and its powers it basically reduced it down to keeping up the roads and and the pipes but (laughs) they made the agreement last until 21 years after the death of the final descendant of king charles the third which is currently Prince Harry's youngest daughter, Lilibet, who's like three. So they're locked into like the 21 aughts, like the like the early 22nd century. They're they're locked in. And so um, <clears throat> Disney did this at a public um at a public meeting and the board members were always kind of like, well, we kind of, you know, we, we really don't have anything now and we're just kind of responsible for some roads and stuff and all this type of thing. And so, and what's even better is not only has Disney regained all the power, what they haven't regained is the bill. The bill for the Reedy Creek Improvement District now goes to the state of Florida. Now, Disney used to pay all of the necessary money to keep everything around Disney World just the way they wanted it. That was the point of the special tax district. It's like, yeah, <clears throat> you don't pay taxes, but you're also responsible for dealing with all this stuff yourself. Save Florida a lot of money. Now, Florida has none of the power and all the bills. So, um, as we all kind of trolled about online, Ron DeSantis clearly does not understand who he's dealing with because ask anybody who works in the arts, and we would have all told you do not screw with Disney. Their lawyers will come for you. They will make you cry in a corner. And if I were DeSantis, I would get a, a a soft bed and perhaps a pillow and some tissues and prepare to begin crying because Disney's coming for you and nobody nobody survives the onslaught of the House of Mouse. <clears throat> um, the other kind of interesting thing that is happening um, that that kind of started to happen last week is we're starting to see the end of, um, of the COVID, um, end of the COVID, the special (laughs) extensions and, um, and the end of, uh, um, and the end of all the sort of special, allowances we put in for covid so a lot of people were led on to medicaid health and coverage was extended the whole you know we basically slapped together a social safety net kind of overnight and over these last couple years um people have gotten used to a lot of that stuff because it's gone on for so long and now with the public health emergency declaration being ended, a lot of those things are coming to an end. They say that 15 million people will probably be thrown off Medicaid rolls as states look at their Medicaid enrollment and look at the incomes and all this type of thing and decide to uh, put people off. So that will be taking a lot of people off health insurance who currently have it. Um, No more free tests, no more free vaccines. Um... 
so it, we're kind we're already kind of ended up going back to the system we had before the pandemic not so good um so that is um that that's a real uh a, a kind of a sad thing because i think it proved one of the things i think the pandemic proved is that the society did better and people had more flexibility and we're doing better when we actually helped people. And that's why I always say my politics can be some, can be simply stated as this helping the material conditions of people. And that's one of the things we actually kind of attempted to sort of do during the pandemic. And unfortunately, as fast as we have done it, it's now going to be undone. And obviously I don't think that's a good idea. I think that's a very shitty thing to do. But here we are, and I think it's kind of sad that the Biden administration is um, allowing a lot of this stuff to to go on. Um, it's not it's not such a good it's not such a good thing. Um, it's we could have used the pandemic as an opportunity to cement a lot of these new changes and a lot of these new um, social services for people and expanded things and made a lot of those things permanent. And I think the fact that we have not, um, we have not uh, really taken the time to uh secure those things is definitely uh definitely a sad point definitely a sad point um there's an opportunity there and unfortunately as usual we're not going to take it so that's most 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 disconcerting um remember last year when everybody said that we were going to have a terrible food shortage well um the shortage may not be coming from Ukraine, but rather from Canada. It says here from Bloomberg, a dry spell is parching Canadian farmland when growers most need moisture to plant the wheat and canola crops that help feed the world. Parts of the Canadian prairies have experienced the second driest year, start to a year in 45 years, said David Strait, senior meteorologist at the Commodity Weather Group. Swaths of key spring wheat regions, including Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba, have received less than 60% of average precipitation since September 1st according to Canada's Agriculture Ministry. <clears throat> it becomes a bit of an art to try and get those seeds at the right depth into the soil because you need to be seeding into moisture to get them to germinate, said Bill Pribaliski, a farmer and vice president at Agricultural Producers Association of Saskatchewan. If there isn't good moisture, those tiny plants aren't quite, are quite susceptible to adverse conditions. Canada is the world's top canola grower and major wheat exporter. Drought fears in Canada come amid continued uncertainty about wheat exports from the Black Sea region, and as dry conditions in parts of the U.S. threaten to cut output. So, we may have been a year off on our prediction of a, um, of a food, of food supply issues, but it looks like we're not, uh, we're not wrong. Um, we might still be having some some food supply issues um, moving forward. And I think, uh, you know, we'll see how, what happens with, 
with the weather. Um, right now, the atmospheric river is pretty far south. It's hitting California and the southwest. They're having flooding and reservoir releases and all this type of thing. So it's not surprising that it's drier farther north. So hopefully the uh, Gulf Stream will move around and start sending some moisture up that direction. Layoffs economic news here. Um, layoffs is trying to expand outside of tech. Today, it's uh, McDonald's. Um, this started last week. Um, McDonald's Corporation is temporarily closing its U.S. offices this week as it notifies hundreds of corporate employees that they're losing their jobs in a broader restructuring plan, according to a person familiar with the matter. The company is notifying affected employees virtually and will close the locations to provide confidentiality out of respect for those affected, said the person, who asked not to be identified discussing private information. McDonald's in January said it planned to cut corporate jobs and eliminate certain initiatives, even, it even as it accelerates new store openings. The job cuts would be final by April 3rd, the fast food company said at the time. It had about 150,000 employees at the end of 2022. The company asked employees to cancel all in-person meetings with vendors and other outside parties at its headquarters from Monday through April 5th. The Wall Street Journal reported on Sunday. Reuters reported earlier Monday that the reductions would number in the hundreds. The cuts come as big companies from technology to retail have slashed their payrolls as accelerating inflation and risk of recession weigh on consumer demand. Walt Disney Company last week began eliminating positions, while Walmart, Amazon, and Meta have also announced reductions. This is probably something that is not, <clears throat> not going away anytime soon. Um, I, the, we have had for the last decade or so, um, very cheap money, very easy money, and a lot of that is now coming home to roost in the form of inflation. And so a lot of these companies are facing rising capital costs, rising debt costs, everyone's looking at saving money, commodities are up, and those prices are inflating, so there's only one other place to take it, and that's in labor costs. <coughs> um, I think not surprisingly, um, because on the other end they're having trouble getting service workers, um, it's not too surprising that's coming out of white-collar corporate positions, which are higher paid, have more benefits, or more expensive. Um, I, the reason I highlighted the story is we've had a lot of layoffs in tech, especially coming out of the Silicon Valley bank disaster. And we'll come back to our banking crisis. It's not a crisis. I have a story on that, too. <clears throat> so coffee today. I am was doing fine. And then, of course, when I sit down to do the weekly news hour, cough, cough, cough. Um... There's a little bit of a lot of layoffs lately with um, Amazon and Facebook and coming out of Silicon Valley Bank and all this sort of thing that uh, we um, it's and I, th I thought that was going to kind of stay within um, within the uh, the tech sector because they're the most affected by rising capital costs. This story is interesting because it's now expanding kind of outward into other more traditional industries. And I think that's a signal that everybody's facing higher capital costs, which means everybody's going to want to um, reduce costs, <clears throat> reduce um, labor costs particularly, in order to deal with this new, this new environment, which also bounces into 
an interesting story I also found um, titled... Uh, Capital had its day, now it's Labor's turn, Troy's Lyon says. Troy Asset Management founder Sebastian Lyon says wages are what's really driving inflation, so be prepared for to stick around for a while. Um, Sebastian Lyon says he'd been expecting inflation to rise for a long time, so when prices began to tick up, his firm was ready. Now the founder and chief investment officer of Troy Asset Management says be prepared for inflation to stick around a while. It's always wages that you've got to look at, Lyon told Marin Somerset Webb on the latest episode of Marin Talks Money. There's the noise of commodities and oil and food prices, but the thing that sustains inflation over longer periods of time is wages, and we have actually been seeing wages rise materially. Capital has had a fantastic time for the last three decades, Lyon said. It's labor's turn. However, Lyon says that rates can still fall, and not every part of the economy that thrived in a low interest rate environment will run into trouble. So what's at risk? He says housing growth stocks, bonds, and banks. In terms of protecting investor wealth, Leon echoes others by suggesting movements into gold. Now, I think it is rather fascinating um, that he views it as it's sort of labor's turn and kind of blaming the inflation problem on wages. Um... <clears throat> The reality, I think, of the situation is wages have been suppressed for a long time. If the minimum wage was indexed for inflation, it would be about 22 bucks an hour. You're starting to see all sorts of positions, you know, starting at 18 $20 an hour, because that's actually what it sort of costs to start to hope to live in this country. More so if you live in an expensive region. Um, and it's a difficult... It's a difficult thing um, to blame the entire problem on labor, mostly because, as far as I'm concerned, companies just can make less money. That really is the solution. Not every company needs to make windfall profits every single quarter. Like, make money. That's fine. But take your 5 to 7% a year and be happy. Um paying people more, paying people more fairly, kind of rejecting the Jack Welch approach to business isn't a bad thing. <clears throat> now, some people on Wall Street might complain, well, you're not giving returns to shareholders. Somehow I think shareholders will be okay. Um, if you're still delivering a decent return every year or paying out modest dividends or whatever have you, then what's to complain about? You get 5 to 7% of growth every year. Com you know, compounded over time, you're doing well. <clears throat> Paying your employees well, on the other hand, is going to reduce all kinds of costs. Hiring costs, retention costs, all this type of thing. Um, which, when you look at in contrast of this guy saying, oh, wages are driving inflation and all this type of thing, and then you look at places like McDonald's who are laying off employees at the corporate level, and Amazon and Facebook and all these other companies kind of laying off employees, um, really the moral of the story is that um, rising wages may raise all boats, but for better or for worse, unfortunately, that also is going to mean a lot of economic reshuffling in, in the meantime. Um, and it may mean fewer jobs. I think people greatly underestimate the deflationary effects of technology. One of the things that, um, um, that, I think was kind of mentioned as we as we started into this inflationary period was 
technology has been very deflationary for a long period of time. We've kind of reached the end of that. And a lot of that was the personal computer revolution and, you know, all this stuff. It was very deflationary and it kind of um, held that held down on inflation. Well, now that time has we've gotten all the productivity gains out of that that we possibly can, which means now <clears throat> that what you know, when you hire a human being to do something, you're going to have to pay them more in order to afford to live in this country. And that's driven by food costs is also driven by housing costs. Um, now, I think housing costs are going to come down sooner rather than later because they're going to have to. If Just simple pricing in a capitalistic system. If the prices go too high and you can't find any buyers, prices will fall until people are willing to buy. So <clears throat> I think there's something uh, there's something to to that. Um, but the the reality is wages have a long way to catch up and. In order for us to continue to have a functioning economy and a functioning society, people are going to have to be compensated. And they're going to have to be compensated enough to survive, but also to thrive and to continue to consume. And given what's happening in this country demographically with boomer retirements, retirees spend much less. They don't consume very much at all. Um and all this type of thing, those who are um, of working age and consuming age, um, which is Gen Z, Millennials, and the tail end of Gen X, um, you're going to need to make sure that those people are incredibly well compensated. Because of, if not, it puts the entire system at risk. And we see this with wealth inequality. We see this at how little national wealth millennials own. We're already seeing the outcomes of this. We're already seeing it manifest in more young people living at home. We're already seeing it manifest as, you know, flights out of big cities, um... I read a lot of stories in the weekend about Zoom towns and how people that left during the pandemic, layoffs have hit tech, they're having to go back to the big cities to find jobs because layoffs have gone. I always wondered what was going to happen about that, and I was right. Um, I'm kind of like, well, moving to Crested Butte's a nice idea if you have a job and you can get other remote work, but if you can't get other remote work, you know, then you're stuck with the local job market, which is usually not that great. I even um, read a story from a guy who was talking about how he had been working in tech, he got laid off, and now he's stocking shelves at Lowe's because there are no jobs in the town where he lives and can't really afford to leave. One of the things about being in a big city is not just having a great job, but also having options in case business changes around. And people kind of forget that, that cities are moving fluid, dynamic places, and that's the advantage of living in a big city, even though there might be some additional expenses of of living in one. So um, that's uh, that's kind of where we are with that. The last story I have, and then I'll quit coughing in your ear or in your face, depending on how you're listening, um, is this very interesting thing from Bloomberg City Lab. And it is about the uh, some public housing redevelopment. So Holland Gardens, which is next to the Holland Tunnel, um, is one of New uh, is one of Jersey City's five public housing complexes, and could soon look a look look a lot more like its modern neighbors. After a public private redevelopment plan was pushed for this month, the site will be transformed into a six hundred thirty one unit mixed income development that preserves public housing and adds affordable senior units, home ownership condos, and market rate apartments. The plan to replace Holland Gardens represents an innovative process of financing and designing ways to preserve the public 
public housing and aims to avoid the pitfalls of previous redevelopment projects. The blueprint, which could become re reality in as soon as four years, emerged from years of community engagement and will include new amenities, retail outlets, services, and community space. While some tenants and local leaders are excited, others aren't so sure. The rebuilding requires involuntary relocation with the promise of a right to return when the project is completed. Apparently, it's falling apart. One woman says here, um, we have mold every two weeks and there's no hot water. Um, and, uh, and the area around Holland Gardens has really boomed and gentrified and now they want to gentrify the public housing i mean it does look really sad it's old it was built in the 19 it was built in 1944 um it is definitely uh it is definitely um in need of redevelopment the interesting thing about this is <clears throat> the tenants and the right to return now this is common in public housing this has happened before it says here ishmael who also declined to include his last name has been living at holland gardens for 10 years for him the most pressing concern was the promise of a right to return he said he went to some of the meetings with the housing authority but found the uncertainty about relocation frustrating i don't know where they're going to put us he said i don't know if we're going to come back Residents will have several relocation options, and the city is providing counseling services to help each family figure out its best option. <clears throat> they can move to another public housing development, access a housing voucher on a private apartment, test the private market temporarily, or take a cash payment and give up return rights. It's unclear if everyone will be able to get what they want. Extra public housing slots are limited. Some residents will have incomes too high to qualify for vouchers, which are already hard to use. Meanwhile, the local rental market is getting expensive fast. Return policies have a messy history in public housing redevelopments, and tenants can fall through the cracks. That is very true. Um, it says that construction takes a while, some residents don't end up returning, mandatory relocations can be stressful for tenants, particularly the elderly and those with health, health issues. Some 43% of the heads of households of all Jersey City public housing are over 62 years old, and nearly half of them have a disability. <clears throat> and so... Um, it's, it's, looks like it's going to be a good, a good project, but I also fully realize that the chances of all those people getting taken back in and getting new apartments and new condos and all that type of thing is, is pretty low. Um, it's nice to have it's nice to have the right of return and all this type of thing but the reality is you know once people move and they're at where they're at and they you know establish new friends and all this type of thing and it's always hard to break up a community and establish community and when you do that it's never quite the same people go off they die they move they go live with their daughter their son all this type of thing they go over here and then new people will come along and a new situation will arise and um, but I do think that overall, it can be a blueprint for public housing in the future, especially as places like here in Seattle are encouraging the construction of public housing to mitigate the housing crisis. So that's, um, that's a good, that's a good thing, I think. So anyway, it's a fascinating story. Um, look it up if you choose to. I'm going to end a little bit early. Well, actually, about right on time. Um, because, <clears throat> as you can hear my throat, I've been coughing the whole time. So rather than continue to cough in your ear, I'm going to let you go. Have a great evening. Thank you for listening to the Cameron Journal uh, 
news hour. I appreciate you all for coming. Make sure to check me out <clears throat> at CameronJournal.com, at Cameron Cowan on Twitter, and I will see you next Monday. episode of the Cameron Journal podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us online at CameronJournal.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I love to talk to my followers and listeners. So please feel free to uh, get us on social media at Cameron Cowan on Twitter. And we'll see you next time on the Cameron Journal podcast.